This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming up on the show, the urgent need for better mental health supports, making food your medicine and free summer fitness for teens. But we begin with climate action. Wildfires are raging across Canada. Air quality here in the GTA was recently at the top of the worst in the world list. Many of us watched in horror as video showed huge swaths of forest, farmland, and open spaces catching fire and moving rapidly and dangerously close to urban settings. And we had to take seriously the warnings about donning our pandemic masks again, this time to protect us from the wildfire-induced toxic air that blanketed where we live, work, and play. And it's far from over. Climate anxiety, yeah, it's a thing. It is a very real thing as Canadians try to cope with what feels like an apocalyptic event destroying our once healthy nation. Dr. Lindsay McCunn is an environmental psychologist. She joins us now from Nanaimo, B.C. Thank you, Dr. McCunn, for being with us today. And what's the situation like in British Columbia in terms of wildfires? Are they still raging? Yes, yeah. There's a lot of um, a lot of fear and a lot of um, trouble with the wildfires in BC, for sure. Well, and that brings me to my point. Climate anxiety is that something that's being fueled by these wildfires from coast to coast to coast. I think so. I think um, uh, climate change anxiety is sort of a new term, a novel term, um, but certainly something that's legitimate and and on the rise and becoming more common for Canadians and other people around the world. Um, climate anxiety is a bit different than other types of worry um, that are, you know, if you worry about something, it can be very productive and very proactive, but climate uh, change anxiety or, or, or feelings of um, you know, hopelessness and powerlessness and, and the lack of efficacy about about the, the state of the climate, um, that's when we get uh, a little bit more of a, a concern with a sense of loss and a sense of deep hopelessness around um, the issue of climate change. And I think uh, it's becoming a lot more prevalent these days, for sure. And who's being affected by it most, do you think, at this point? Well, there's been uh, a few mixed studies on that. I think, um, you know, the, the young adults in our society probably feel a lot like you know, uh, the issue is sort of on them to, to solve. And so I feel like they've got uh, a lot more um, anxiety about this. But also uh, elderly people who may not have as many resources to overcome some of the uh, effects of things like wildfires or other natural disasters that occur. Um, children, for sure, are, are feeling a little bit more anxious, especially when they hear all the adults around them talking about uh, uh, really concerning topics about their future and the future of um, uh, uh, other generations, and so uh, I think it affects everyone. But but certainly people with maybe less resources or fewer resources than than others, um, and then those who feel like the problem is theirs to solve. I suppose. And you're right. We've got two sides of the coin here. We've got eco warriors who have been aware of climate change issues for years, for decades. But then there are people who have not paid any attention to it until now, when they donned their pandemic masks again to try to uh, keep their lungs free of the smoke-filled air, when they see on television the video of these raging, incredibly huge, uncontrollable wildfires. So it's affecting so many people at this point. Yeah, yeah, and I think the issue of psychological distance is a big one. Sometimes when we think about climate change, we don't often think about it as close to home or something that we as individuals have to deal with. But then the closer it becomes and the more salient it becomes or prevalent to our day-to-day lives, we realize uh, uh, how much anxiety there might be <laughs> to feel and um, and how much power or not that we have to, to deal with it uh, as, as people. How can we turn climate anxiety into something that is positive and proactive? And I, and I hope that I'm not being glib or being taken as being glib in saying that, but is there any way to turn this kind of anxiety into something that is positive? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times people um, sort of make that transition from feeling that proactive worry, that sort of um, moment where um, you can you can be worried and be productive about it, um, and then when it transis- uh, transitions into being something a bit more um, devastating, then we stop acting and we stop having behavioral outcomes and, and a sense of engagement or power over the issue. And a lot of times people as individuals feel like, oh, you know, what can I do as one person, as a single person? It's, it's an organizational issue. It's a structural issue. It's a government issue. But really, we have to remember that as individuals, we have a lot of power uh, socially to 
um, affect others around us. Role modeling is, is really powerful. So for me as a mother or just as a neighbor or a professor, I know that whatever I do behaviorally for sustainability and for my community uh, in terms of eco-consciousness, people are watching and, and maybe being inspired by what I do. Um, and so always doing, even if it's just the little things like, you know, planting your own garden or harvesting rainwater or going to uh, something to do with activism or writing a letter or whatever it is to, to do with your own personality, I think a lot of times people feel um, like they have to act beyond what they're comfortable with. You know, if you're introverted, you might not want to go to a protest, but uh, if you're extroverted, you might want to do different things. Act within your personality and find what really resonates with you in terms of sustainability, and that will hopefully make a lot of people feel more empowered than they would otherwise. Dr. McCon, we are emerging from a global pandemic, so how does that experience of the past three years either help us or fuel the anxiety? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that they're they're related in terms of just the general level of anxiety that people are feeling and the level of trust people are feeling about other people in society, about governments, about the state of the world. Um, it's it's unfortunate that these things sort of happen back to back all the time. But I think if, again, people find uh, resources within themselves to, to think about pro-social things or um, pro-environmental things that they can do either in their attitude and their perspective and state of mind or in their behaviors, um, it can help you. Uh, feel a little bit better, but uh, but it is it is a tricky time. The greater Toronto area where we are right now, last week the air quality was some of the worst in the world, and it was we were advised to wear our pandemic masks both inside and outside, even in our vehicles. That sent shockwaves through a lot of the population. We have been, you know, we've been watching what's been going on on television. We haven't been necessarily affected so closely by wildfires as we were last week. Do you think that's a wake-up call that we need? I think it can be for some people. I mean, it might be unfortunate for those who are already very anxious, and then that just uh, makes it, uh, makes it worse for for others. But for for people who are maybe on the fence or weren't really feeling um, like things were as serious, uh, it might it might spur on some um, uh, different attitudes and, and perspectives about climate change. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a, it's not a good or optimal situation, but it might help some people feel uh, uh, the prevalence of the problem, I think. This is not going away. This is not going away. That's the bottom line. How do you explain to the average citizen, someone like me, how to adjust my future hopes for my planet when I see what's going on in front of me? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, for me, it's always uh, a matter of recognizing this um, I call it, you know, the, the psychological construct of sense of place. So recognizing the places that I'm attached to, the places to which I have place identity or place dependence, and really realigning with um, the, the connections to nature or, uh, you know, different built environments, whatever it is for you, to cultivate that sense of place in your life and to recognize how to steward those places and to take care of them. Because I think the emotional, con- uh, you know, the connection between nature and places can help us remember why it's so important to make changes in our lives that are sustainable and eco-conscious and then as individuals hopefully uh, help uh, a larger structure solve the problem over time. I was looking at your CV, you're a PhD, you're a professor of the Department of Psychology, Vancouver Island University. This is what stood out for me. You're the director of the Environmental Psychology Research Lab, the Faculty of Social Sciences. What are you researching in this lab? Yeah, we do research on all sorts of uh, things to do with uh, public infrastructure, hospitals, prisons, schools, offices. Um, we try to make uh, buildings more humane. Um, environmental psych is the study of the relations and transactions between people and place. And place could mean anything, nature, a park bench, <laughs> your room, a coffee shop, but also larger uh, uh, places. Um, and so we, we work with designers and architects and, and urban planners um, and also more theoretical researchers to do with uh, conservation and climate change and attitudes and so on, just to make um, different environments better for people, but also, um, you know, figure out how we can uh, uh, help the planet in this, at the same time. And it's, it's a wonderful, worthwhile field. You have been approached by many since these wildfires really grew out of proportion right across our nation. What are you saying to people? And it would be regular folks like me, uh, it would be, you know, government officials, uh, other members of the media, asking you for help, asking you as a, an environmental psychologist for help. How do we deal with climate anxiety? 
Yeah, I think it depends on the person and your personality. So if if you're more comfortable talking to your municipal government and, and, and talking to larger groups and organizations to figure out how you can help on that level or on that scale, go for it. If it's something that you need to, you know, go inward and become sustainable and resourceful in your own home, um, you know, growing your own food, <laughs> working within yourself to understand your relationship with place and your community, then do that. Um, really work uh, with yourself almost to understand your own relationship to to the climate, to your home, to your uh, society, and, and and think about how you want to help as an individual, um, and then uh, and then go from there. It's not going to be uh, sort of a, a recipe that for everyone to do the same thing. It's going to have to be quite tailored to who you are, um, and I think that's why psychology can be kind of an interesting um, facet to to the conversation because it does relate to how you are as an individual and as a person really um, take responsibility over understanding yourself in relation to the problem of climate change. Dr. Lindsay McCunn, environmental psychologist, thank you so much for spending time with us on the feed today. Oh, you're very welcome. Canadians are increasingly burdened by debt. Kevin Frankish now with the stress index. We are in the absolute weirdest economy in modern history. All signs point to us going into a recession. But this week, GDP figures show faster-than-expected growth, strong household spending, and despite big layoffs in the tech sector, jobs reports are showing persistent strength in Canada's labor market. What gives? Well, then there are food prices. They're still in the stratosphere. And this is one reason the Bank of Canada has been jacking up interest rates since the beginning of last year. It's no wonder that most of us are just trying to keep our head above water with waves coming at us from all directions. A new Angus Reid poll suggests almost half of us are worse off, though, financially than last year with about a third struggling just to get by. To talk more about this, Dave Krasinski, uh, Angus Reid Research Director, joins me right now. Hi, Dave. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It is a weird time, isn't it? It is, yeah. There's so many different factors that are kind of coming together that are putting people in a really tough spot. And as you mentioned, it's it's this kind of dichotomy between all these, these personal challenges and you know, the, the macro health that's actually pretty good, but to the point where the Bank of Canada says it, it it's too good, so we got to kind of taper it down. So I think it's a confusing time for a lot of people um, and, and a time of a lot of anxiety, especially if you're, say, a homeowner who has a mortgage that is coming up in the next year or two, or if you're on a variable mortgage, it could be a really tricky time and a lot of uncertainty. So I think that, you know, you've described it pretty well. It is a very strange time in the economy right now. Well, actually, I use the technical term wacky. (laughs) I think if we if we ask people to pick a term, I think wacky probably would be pretty high on the list if we just presented people with words. You did ask people to tell you how they're feeling. And it doesn't matter what's happening in the economy technically. It's what's happening in our bank accounts. And uh, you're showing, I mean, the the saddest thing is that a third of people are just struggling to get by. Yeah, they are. So about 31% say they're struggling. And that's actually based on a number of different factors. We created a bit of a composite of things like grocery prices, uh, ability to pay for your uh, living situation, whether you're a renter or you're a homeowner. Um, and also uh, things like your 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 outlook um, and your perception of how you are. So something like 46% of Canadians say that they're worse off now than they were last year financially. So that's something that is a personal sentiment, um, but I think is really powerful when you're trying to understand people's uh, perceptions of what's happening. Uh, another one-third say that they're going to be worse off next year so they might be, you know, treading water now, but there's that anxiety going forward. And what you get is 31% who are in that struggling category, and 22% who are not quite as, as bad off. They don't quite have those stress levels, but we would call them uncomfortable. They are not in a great space like, um, you know, the 21% of Canadians who we have as thriving. These aren't really issues for them. So it does give you a, a, a picture of, the economy based on who's having the most trouble. Um, and those people who are most likely to be struggling are between the ages of 35 and 54, 
Um, so that puts them right in the middle of home ownership and raising children. So I think those are two factors that uh, governments are pretty aware of, but we also have to keep in mind as, as things that can make it uh, much more difficult to get by when you are uh, trying to provide for for other little humans. That can be a, a big challenge. I wonder if, if, and you say between 35 and 54, they say that they're, they're struggling more likely than their older and their younger peers. I'm wondering if, if perhaps the younger generation has just sort of set itself uh, to to the fact that the economy is not good, that they may not own a house or own a house anytime soon. However, those in the middle see what their parents had and wanted it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and younger people, um, the ones that are struggling are those who have seen their rent go up considerably. You know, uh, 15% of renters say it's very difficult to pay for their rent right now. Uh, 31% say it's tough to pay for their rent, so it's it's not an overwhelming concern, but it, they are having a challenge. So that's 50% of renters. Um, and you can be in a situation as a renter where you almost feel like you're being held hostage by your current living situation because if you try to make a lateral move looking for a similar, you know, a two-bedroom place in the same city, if you've been living there for a couple of years, you've seen prices rise, you know, 15 20%, and you, and you might not be... Uh, happy where you are, but you see the price going up a couple hundred dollars uh, a month if you're trying to move, uh, and and you can't really have that mobility. And as you mentioned, that home ownership, that you know, that aspirational aspect of it, something that we really do see when we ask about, you know, will you own a home? A lot of younger people are kind of resigned to the fact that that might not be in their future, or certainly not their near future. Um, especially if they're living in a place like Vancouver or Toronto, it's very hard to kind of prognosticate long-term there. If you're working um, and traveling into the city, it's the idea of buying a place that's going to cost you more than a million dollars can be really overwhelming. So you can see why some young people are just kind of resigned to the fact that maybe home ownership isn't really in my future and, and we'll have to see what happens in the next 10 years and then reassess. Uh, debt, uh, especially credit card debt, has gone up significantly with this uncertain economy. Um, what did you find out about that? Yeah, in terms of the debt levels, we are seeing a bit of a, a bit of an increase. We've got 26% who say that that's a major source of stress for them. That's up from 22 last June. So when you're looking at big, these numbers, 4% might not seem like a lot, but when you when you project that to the whole population of hundreds and thousands of people over the age of 18, that's, that's a big portion. And then you add in to that 26%, another 42 who say this is a source of stress. It's, it's not quite at that major stress level, but it is a source of stress. And right there, you've got basically seven in 10 Canadians who say this is, this is causing them stress. And you can see that in terms of our um, debt levels per person being you know, among, I believe they are the highest in the G7 now um, because a lot of that is is that home ownership debt and a lot of the personal debt that people are taking on to stay afloat. Um, and if you look at people on the lower end of the income spectrum, you get about one in three who say that it's a major source of debt. And what's challenging for those individuals is we set that level at about uh, $25,000 or less for, for your you know, personal income mm-hmm. per year. So if you're very stressed about uh, your debt level and you're earning less than $25,000 a year, that sort of suggests you, you're not going to have the ability to pay that down uh, anytime in the near future. So that's that compounding effect that we see. Um, and that's why we like to, um, you know, as an institute, just track these things over time. And, and that's what we're seeing now is that that jump in the percentage of, of Canadians who are concerned about these issues and that are having a hard time. And that's, that's I think, what's scary when, when you look at this issue is um, the, the increase in, in those stress levels and uh, inability to kind of keep up is something that we really noted uh, this quarter. That word stress has uh, come out of your mouth uh, several times uh, as we've talked. I, I'd love to see a poll that looks at both the financial situation and the mental health situation, because I believe mm-hmm. there might be some comparisons. 
Yeah, I think that's one thing that we noticed during COVID-19 was that um, that mental health aspect of it was such a big portion um, in addition to the financial stress levels. You know, people were, even in a situation where you were maybe getting your CERB benefit and, and your financial stress, you were, you were keeping up, um, but the, the mental stress of that type of situation, not knowing where your money was coming from, uh, over the course of the next couple of months and a lot of the uncertainty around the pandemic. That was the biggest thing that we found with, with that issue was that, that mental stress. And I think that these things do weigh on people. And mm-hmm. I, I also mentioned a couple of times, like the compounding aspect of this and these, these payments don't stop. I think that's what people get into a situation where they've, they've got a, a high level of financial stress and then, you know, you make your bills and then you just start counting down to the next couple of weeks when you've got another bill coming. And it can be a really difficult time. So, um, yeah, I think that's something that we'll, we'll likely look into here now mm-hmm. that we're a little more clear of pandemic stress and people are getting back to their lives. But this financial aspect of it has really taken over and we've seen it really zoom to the top of, of Canadians' list. If you ask them what they're worried about, you know, 62% say cost of living or inflation um, that's three times higher than climate change now. And climate wow. change for, for a lot, the longest time really was the top issue, but it's kind of been uh, surpassed by these personal concerns. Interesting. Uh, thank you for this. I appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Dave Krasinski, Angus Reed Research Director, uh, speaking with me about a new poll that shows a third of Canadians say they are struggling to get by. Two local chambers of commerce are considering joining forces. Newmarket and East Willembury are reviewing the benefits of a possible amalgamation. Details from Glenn Perkins. Chris Emanuel is the president and CEO of the Newmarket Chamber of Commerce. Chris, welcome to the feed. Thanks for having me. How did the discussions begin concerning the possible amalgamation between the Newmarket and East Willembury Chamber of Commerce? Uh, we were approached by a board member from the East Willembury Chamber of Commerce who you know, had raised it at his board, and, and uh, uh, frankly, it, uh, it's something we'd kind of talked about for years, and uh, uh, so both boards uh, had discussions about it and thought, well, 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 let's explore this. Can you just briefly explain the role of the organizations? Yeah, so Chambers of Commerce are member-based organizations, so local businesses, not-for-profits, they, they, they take out a membership, uh, you know, to varying degrees on, on their size, uh, and our job is we're an advocacy organization, so uh, we also help educate them on on things like marketing and business, uh, you know, uh, techniques and things like that. Uh, uh, but we we create networking uh, uh, opportunities through events, uh, and then we also are known for things like our business excellence awards. And um, so we're really the the voice of business um, in our respective communities, and and uh, so you see chambers of commerce throughout the country. How would the amalgamation improve on the service that you currently give your members? You know, the one thing, and this is primarily what we're exploring with the amalgamation, is uh, A, uh, it, it needs to improve on the services. So uh, the nice thing is East Willembury has all kinds of opportunity for growth, uh, but they've got limited capacity. We've got the capacity, and we're able to support that growth. So by combining, we're going to find some economies of scale, surely find some savings, and now we're going to be able to deliver bigger, better events for our members. Is that what makes the two organizations compatible? We're, we're, we're largely compatible, I mean, because of geography. You know, new market businesses and residents shop and eat in these school number and use businesses there, and vice versa. You know, borders don't mean much to, to, to residents and to businesses. So I'm glad that, you know, we've got two organizations that are willing to look past these almost these artificial lines uh, and, and, and really find ways to collaborate and, again, deliver, I think, a better product uh, uh, for the members. This would not mean that either chamber would be dissolved, does it? No. So what, what ends up happening, no community is going to uh, really see a change other than, again, bigger and better events. So we become one bigger entity, likely. Uh, you know, their staff, you know, we, we, we all become one unified uh, team. But again, uh, we're able to uh, deliver more and in a, in a more effective manner, I think, for members. So, I mean, businesses get that, right? Every business tries to uh, make their dollar go that bit further. And we're going to be able to do that for them and then deliver better services. Chris, what's the next step? So right now, we're, we're spending the summer. We're exploring it. We've got uh, subtask groups that 
we're, you know, we're making sure we you know, turn every stone and, and making sure that we're not missing anything because, again, at the end of the day, we're only going to do this if it's right from members. Uh, so we're going to spend the summer doing that investigation and then sharing those results with the members um, over the late summer, uh, early fall. Perfect world, you know, close to plan and there's no, um, you know, no issues that sidetrack us. This could all be completed by December, likely. If you do move forward with this, do you see this as a template that maybe other chambers would review and possibly consider implementing? I think other chambers would look at this. The nice thing is we're looking at other chambers that have done this. So we're, for, we're, we're hardly the first. Uh, uh, we've got, we actually engaged a consultant to help us with this who, who helped merge the Peterborough and Kawartha's uh, uh, chambers of commerce. So that's the nice thing is we're not, uh, we're not bleeding edge here, uh, but we're doing what's right uh, for, for, I think, the members um, in, in this area. And, uh, but regardless, uh, if, if at the very least chambers start to collaborate more and do things more together, we're all going to benefit from that. Chris Emanuel, the President and CEO of the New Market Chamber of Commerce, thank you for joining us on The Feed. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you. You are listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Suicide rates are on the rise. Who is most at risk? That story is next on The Feed. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. A new study from York University is making an urgent call for mental health supports for the LGBTQ plus community. Shaliza Backus with what is needed most. This month is Pride Month, and while we'd like to be positive and be celebrating the LGBTQ plus communities, there are still some serious issues and struggles that people in those communities face, many of which are mental health related. A group of researchers at York University conducted a study which shows that women who identify as bisexual were more than three times more likely to attempt suicide compared to heterosexual women. Joining me to discuss this is lead author of the study, Dr. Anthony Chum, Canada Research Chair in Population Health Data Sciences. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Chum. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Chum, let's start off with why this study was so important. Why did you feel it was important to conduct such a specific study? So prior research actually on this topic mostly relied on surveys. In terms of surveys and the study of suicide is that the problem of survival bias, meaning that people who died or um, are too sick uh, from suicide attempts can't participate um, on survey. The reason why this study was conducted is that we were able to use people's hospitalization records, emergency department visits, as well as mortality records in order to better capture suicide-related behaviors. And then, so can you elaborate on how collecting this type of data really came about? How did you know if they were bisexual or not? Yeah, so the data actually comes from the Canadian Community Health Survey. And since 2003, they've collected information on sexual orientation identity. So whether people identify as a gay man, a lesbian, bisexual man or woman, or heterosexual. So based on this information, we linked 125,000 people living in Ontario to their health administrative records so that we can better understand suicide-related behaviors from a healthcare perspective. Okay, and we know, like we know this, we know suicide is a problem amongst the LGBTQ plus communities. How do the findings of this study further solidify that? So we found that in among heterosexual individuals, there were around 200 events per 100,000 person. This number rose to 650 for gays and lesbians. And for bisexuals, this number rose to 5,900 events per 100,000 person. It's a very big difference, uh, and bisexuals are the most at risk. One of the reasons why bisexual women specifically are at risk is that um, often because of uh, biphobia, uh, bisexual discrimination against bisexual within the LGBTQ community as well as the general population, and also bisexual women tend to have a higher risk also for intimate partner violence, which we know from the prior literature. 
That's that's actually very, very concerning. So I guess now the question really becomes, where do we go from here? What steps need to be taken to get people the help that they need? So one of the issues for us in Canada specifically is that we know there's a number of policy factors. So for example, in the from 2019 to 2021, we know that hate crimes targeting LGBTQ community actually rose by 60%, 6-0. We also know that there's a lot of policies that are put in place now that can also damage LGBTQ mental health. So for example, in New Brunswick, uh, there's new policies in, in schools where changes in pronouns and first names require parental consent. So that's gonna put trans and non-binary kids at risk for coming out prematurely to their family even before they're ready to. So these are some of the factors that we should be aware of at the sort of societal level. Now, in terms of clinical factors, so what can clinicians do right now? So, I mean, we do have uh, mental health care, but most of it is only accessible through private insurance, right? And so increasing mental health care is going to be very important. For clinicians and, and mental health professionals, you know, cultivating a welcoming, inclusive environment, uh, creating a safe and affirming space for LGBTQ patients is important. You know, uh, some strategies can be including uh, LGBTQ-friendly symbols, literature, resources in your clinic, staying informed about LGBTQ mental issues, terminology, current research, continually updating your knowledge and seek professional development opportunities uh, in this area. For example, clinicians can get training through Rainbow Health Ontario, it's important to be aware of the resources and support networks that are available. So if you're a teacher or guidance counselor or anyone in really positions of power or, or even HR, connect your LGBTQ uh, individuals with relevant community resources, support groups, local organizations, provide information about uh, LGBTQ-friendly therapists, phone lines, online forums. So increasing that social support can be vital for uh, LGBTQ mental well-being. And Dr. Chow, I also noticed that you mentioned that, you know, you're talking about a lot of younger kids coming out to their parents and things like that. Was the suicide rate higher in younger kids or was it in older people? So suicide-related behavior is, is, is more prevalent in younger populations, yes. And in fact, one part of the reason why the uh, bisexual population has a higher rate is because they actually are, on average, about 10 years younger than the lesbian and gay population in our sample. That's interesting. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of support resources and things like that, but support, I feel, also needs to come from other human beings as well. So if you had one piece of advice on how we can all be allies and really help this pressing issue, what would you say? So I think, like, everyone can speak out against discrimination, stigmatization, and marginalization for LGBTQ plus communities. So advocate for policies that protect their rights, and help improve their access to health care, be an ally and support the broader LGBTQ community. Because even to this day, like in 2023, we are still facing a lot of problems at the policy and societal issues. Yeah, we really are. And what other issues have you come across amongst these communities? So we do have uh, other studies looking at substance use. And we do find, for example, that certain groups are at risk for substance use, not as a whole, actually. Uh, bisexual men, for example, compared to heterosexual men, do not have higher rates of alcohol use, for example. But uh, gay men, when we compare to their heterosexual counterparts, do have higher use of illicit drugs and certain drugs. And we also have another study looking at the impact of gender-affirming care on uh, self-harm behaviors in transgender individuals. So there is a link between providing gender-affirming care as a means of reducing self-harm behaviors. All right. Lots of research being done and lots of steps being taken to help those in the LGBTQ plus community. And Dr. Chum, I think you said it the best that it's 2023 and so many people in these communities still face so many issues. So while we've come a long way, I think we do have a long way to go. That's right. Once again, Dr. Anthony Chum, Canada Research Chair in Population Health Data Sciences. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. After the break, working out for free all summer long.
Welcome back. You are what you eat. Your body is a temple. A healthy outside starts from the inside. Okay, all great adages, but what do they really mean, and is there some truth to these sayings? Mark Newman is a passionate nutrition activist, a provocative author, and the powerful force behind Foodison. His life-changing health journey began in a very personal way. His body, his temple, was falling apart. Mark Newman, welcome to the feed. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. So tell us your story. How did you step into this new world? Well, it started on my journey of living the, the life experience of the human being. I started in restaurants and bars, and it was kind of my, my foray into the human experience. And uh, year after year, love and life, live and life large, just compounded, compounded, compounded on, on this awesome experience of humanity. Things bottomed out uh, in Australia when I moved there with my, uh, my now ex-wife and kid, and things bottomed out. And I started taking stock of my life and realized that 35 years old, I get 12 diseases, I get 14 medications, and oh my Lord, where do I begin? Like I followed all the rules that I thought society was giving us and guiding us to the right areas of how to live and maintain. I thought the industry that I was in was supporting the human body, but it turns out that uh, we are only the ones that are in control of our own bodies and nothing out there supports us except for ourselves. So how did Foodison come about? So when I made this discovery, uh, and as you can read in my book, uh, I, I kind of reached the bottom of my battle, and I kind of looked in the mirror one day and I said, okay, you can't allow yourself to ever get back to this place again. And, and I drove away and started looking at what was the human body, uh, what was nourishment for the human body all about? What, what do we need? What are the basic elements? And when I discovered in a very short period of time that it really is about fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and greens, I went to the local farmer's market. I literally bought one of everything that they were selling. I came home. I utilized my cutting and chopping skills that I've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. And I started to make uh, two liters of whatever it was that I was kind of guided towards consuming, which was abundance fruits and vegetables. When I looked at your website and and read all about you, which I've done, and I I find it really easy to digest, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, but all of the information that Mm -hmm. you talk about, you make it very straightforward, but certain words kept popping up, alkaline and cellular. Can you tell me about the sort of scientific part of Foodison? So when I first started my journey, I was just a foodie kind of on on, on a self-cleansing, self-help journey. Uh, and as I started delving into things, and then when, you know, within the first 28 days, I literally reversed 80% of what was going on in my body uh, by this two liters of this gut juice that I was drinking. Uh, and I started asking the question, why? Why was I, as a, as a just a foodie, able to, to make myself feel so awesome when all I would do is go to doctor after doctor, get prescription after prescription? Uh, and, and so I never stopped asking the question, why, uh, in 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 the meantime, I did documentaries and I did case studies and eventually I got the science uh, eight and a half years later behind why alkalinity is the key to reversing dis-ease and disorder in the human body. And uh, ultimately what happens is when you consume alkaline foods or water, there is a cellular connectiveness that takes place. So the cell that's been lying dormant will open up and would allow the, the alkalinity to then fuel the cell with its, you know, with its vitamins and minerals and everything that the cell needs in order to survive and thrive. And so in there lay that, that kind of science connection of, of, yes, I got it. This is it. Mm. You, in your website, uh, on your website, you talk about a healthier you in 28 days. Can you explain the, that particular part of the program? So, uh, yeah, when I finished kind of not researching, but when I understood that what my body needed was fruits, vegetables uh, alone, I went on that journey because I knew that I'd lived the other life where fruits and vegetables were a very little part of my diet. And so when I went to the farmer's market and I bought these 20 different ingredients and I blended them all together with water and I would drink two liters every day, uh, you know, I just something inside of me just said, stay on this journey. And, and literally, and it was incredible. Within two weeks, uh, I started looking down in my stomach and saying, are you there? Because I'm not feeling you anymore. And anybody who's suffered from IBS or IBD or, or gastrointestinal issues will know that when you have those, the pain is, is sometimes dynamic. I mean, I had tears that would run down my eyes sometimes. 
Uh, and so when I when I would look to my stomach and go, "Are you there?" Because I don't feel you. It was it was like a revelation of, "Wow, something's really connecting here. Something's really working." I want to talk about the product. So you encourage people to to allow you to do the work so that they don't have to in a way. So the food is in cellular nutrition. I'm holding right now in my hand the green energy cocktail, and it cleanses and energizes the body cell by cell. Why did why are you providing this? Why can't people just at home go to their blender, put in the, the ingredients that they think they should have? What what is it? What's the difference between just doing it ourselves or having you guide us through this? You know, and we we live in a world that is just absolutely crazy, dynamic, busy. Um, you know, but at the same time, we are a basic species, and our cellular connectivity deserves what it needs uh, instead of what we want to give it. And so when we connect with that, we understand that, you know, the the importance of doing it. Uh, But because we're so busy, we don't have the time to do it. And, you know, quite frankly, there are many people that I speak to on a regular basis that say, yeah, go and buy a juice or a blender, get excited on week Mm -hmm. one, and then by the end of week one and a half, I'm like, I'm done. I I, I can't cut, I can't prep, I can't chop, I can't dice. Uh, and I think it goes down to the understanding of knife skills, if I can be so bold as to say that. I think if we had a better understanding of how to use a knife and cut and chop and prep and dice, it would make things easier. And so part of what Foodicin is about is expanding myself into eventually opening up Foodicin schools where we can teach the basic elements of, of you know, not only just the, 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 the educational aspect of it, but the physical aspect of how to how to prep for yourself. But we're not there yet. So I've you know, develop these products that you can literally have in your fridge every day, wake up in the morning, know your morning routine, get on with your day, alkaline your life, and and start to live a full, awesome, healthy life as an adult human being. Probably a naive question, but is this all one consumes in a day? Can you, once you've had your, your portion of, say, the green energy cocktail, as the day progresses, do you eat the regular food that may not be so great for you, or do you stick to this? So we have different, I've created different entry levels for different uh, strategies. So if you're somebody that's uh, really living a healthy life and you just want to incorporate something into your life that's more alkaline, we have the best start to your day. If you, uh, and that's normally what I will start people on for to dip their toe into the, to the proverbial pool, so to speak. Uh, if you are a little bit more advanced in your understanding of health nutrition, you might want to jump up to a full bag a day. And then for those who really want to turn off and switch off the acidity in their bodies uh, and, and really clean and pur- purify themselves, I have the purification mode. So there's different le- levels that anybody can enter. And uh, I always, you know, I created my shop in my space because I really want people to be re-educated on how simple nutrition is. So, you know, I always implore, come and have a chat with me. Let's figure out what program suits you best. Let's get you started. Try it for a week, feel the difference, try it for a month, see the difference, and realize that you actually have control over your own health and wellness every single day. You know, it's interesting. Food is in Alkaline Breakfast Bar. You opened that up in Stouffville, and this is just sort of a little sidebar to this discussion, but it's a, a business aspect to it. The My Main Street program helped you open up Food is in and to make the dream of a storefront come true. Yeah, that was an exciting time. I'd actually already opened up, and uh, when I joined the Chamber of Commerce, uh, there was some amazing help that came from there uh, and mentioned about this grant that was going around. And, uh, yeah, I applied for it, and obviously every, everything was checked and ticked off. And it was just a really great opportunity uh, to, to purchase product that will stand me in the long stead of getting things going, uh, new blenders, you know, that are high-profile blenders, tables and chairs and Things that really mean that this business can go to the next level, um, you know, without me having to go and struggle day by day. And, and even though that's part of it, you know, we still kind of are there. We're still a new business and still, you know, getting the word out there and that's still, you know, connecting people to alkalinity as where we need to be. Whether, again, going back to your last question, whether it's just part of the day, a uh, bigger part of the day or the complete day, it's really the, it's not even a fad that's going to come and go. It is where... I think people will wake up to the power of alkaline and, uh, you know, and we can all live a healthy life because of that. People can find you at the Foodist and Alkaline Breakfast Bar in Stouffville. Who's coming to you? What kinds of people are coming to you for help? 
You know what? It's uh, it's a cross section of individuals. Uh, my business model is designed to be direct to consumer. Uh, yes, I have my shop. You can always visit me in Stovall. In, fa- in, in fact, it's worth a stop over to Stovall because the more we can talk about where we're going, the more you'll walk away feeling like you're empowered to really change your life. Um, and so I'm getting people from all different parts of the, the GTA that are, you know, kind of want to live a healthier life, that that are, are tired of struggling, that have done research on their own, that have found that food is medicine, but don't know how to implement it into their own life. Uh, and, you know, we, we struggle daily with, with our weight and with our challenges. And most of us know that, that fruits and vegetables are key, but we just can't get enough of it into our body. So when I discovered what I discovered, I just knew that I couldn't carry on serving people you know, martinis, like I had a company years ago called The Decade of Martini. I, could, I couldn't do that anymore, alcohol and, and, and sugar, and it wasn't part of who I became. And so Foodicin was born not only out of necessity for myself, but realization that food done the right way through Mother Nature's inspiration can really help us move into a new realm of understanding of nutrition fit for the human species. And you make it easy. So you've gone from your book title years ago, Did I Eat Toxic, to your mantra, which is simple methodology inspired by Mother Nature. By the way, I want to let our listeners know that I had the pleasure of meeting you face-to-face last week when you were here at the station. You are a walking example of the picture of health, Mark. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. (laughs) How do people find out more, Mark? Uh, listen, I can. I'm always open to phone calls. My number is on the uh, on my website, which is www.foodicin.com. I'm just going to spell it out. It's f-o-o-d-i-c-y-n.com. Uh, to me, education is the most important thing. So, if you want to find out more, download my book. It's free on my website. I've got a documentary there. Uh, you know, my shop is really exciting. I've created uh, what I what I refer to as a new fast food movement, uh, an alkaline fast food movement, where we do nutty protein shakes with homemade almond milks and you know hot chocolates again with 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 a hazelnut milk so everything's based on homemade ingredients from mother nature's garden alone and it's uh it's an exciting space so yeah definitely got to get down to Stovall or you know get online do some more research and reach out to me i'm available in all those different channels mark newman foodison thank you so much for joining us on the feed thank you so much and i appreciate this opportunity Getting on the fitness track early is a good start to a healthy lifestyle. Jim Lang now with the free option for young people. Well, I'm a big fitness buff, and I think fitness is a very important about our physical and mental well-being, especially for the youth. And thumbs up, double thumbs up to Good Life for an incredible initiative this summer called the Good Life Teen Fitness Program, providing free access to 200 Good Life Fitness Clubs all summer long for kids 12 to 17. I think it's amazing. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by the VP of Experience and Safety for Good Life Fitness, Tracy Matthews. Tracy, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic. I just think this is such a great idea. Um, that you've been doing this a number of years. Where did it come? The idea come up with, and how popular has it become over the last few years, Tracy? Yeah, we've actually been doing this program for 13 years, giving teens access to gyms over the summer to develop healthy habits and, and stay active when they're out of school. We're so excited that teens have been been embracing having this space where they can connect with other people and um, start off or continue the fitness journey. This year, though, is slightly different because we have uh, reached out to an advisory panel to give teens some ideas, give us, give teens, give us some ideas on how we could expand the program. So this this year, the program is second to none. It has more equipment, more weights, more fitness classes. And this year, we have a digital component where they can get exclusive workouts on our app. Oh, that's really cool. You can get more details at teenfitness.ca. It'll run between July 5th and September the 4th. And and, and I, I guess it, for me, it's all but laying the foundation for young people in that age group thinking that they just can do a little bit every week for the rest of their life and stay healthier. That's exactly right. And that's why we're so excited to invite teens in that, are, that start at age 12 because they can really start or continue what habits they have formed and then continue them all the way through their teenage years. Now, I know for me personally, even at my age, I'm a middle-aged man and I find working out on a regular basis it really helps me mentally. And I think for a lot of kids with the pressure and social media and getting marks and getting into schools, just getting that little break and being physically active in a place like Good Life, I think it can really help them in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. We really want teens to focus on both the, the fitness benefits of their health as well as the mental well-being. Um, teens have also mentioned, though, they like that social connection. So after the last few years, they've been missing that, and this mm. gives them a place to socially connect with others. Speaking of Tracy Matthews, the VP of Experience and Safety for Good Life Fitness, talking about their teen fitness program. Get all the details at teenfitness.ca. Now, you're in the 13th year doing this. Tracy, have you received some feedback from past participants that, uh, that have let you know how much it meant to them? We have. We have lots of testimonials of how much uh, they've enjoyed their time at the club. And then some have even continued on with membership. So we're really excited just to give people that start that they need um, for their fitness for their lifetime. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up earlier about the social connection because I think people sometimes think of, of gyms and, the you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not like that anymore, especially Good Life. It's There's different pockets of the gym that have a different vibe to it. There's TVs. There's there's a little bit of music. So it, it, there, it is a welcoming atmosphere for people to come in no matter what your fitness level. Yeah, absolutely. Teens can come and use our cardio equipment, the strength training equipment, the free weights, or just try a class. Um, and then with those teen fitness-friendly um, workouts that I mentioned that are on our app, it also gives them the programs they need to get started. Now, and how often do you end up going to, to work out in a week? Is it something because balancing everything you have in life in your job, are you doing the same thing like I'm going to spend a couple days a week and make sure I do this just for my own benefit? Yeah, for me, I look at getting some type of fitness in every day, and that includes getting to the club. Um, it's just a really great way to feel better overall, get your mind clear, and just have some of those long-term benefits that fitness can give. One thing you, you alluded to it earlier, and it's something that you study have done over the last decade or so, that a lot of the teens are using more free weights and weight machines as opposed to cardio equipment. Was there feedback to let you know that they wanted to do this? Is it something they've gotten from YouTube videos or Instagram videos about fitness? Or how did that trend sort of evolve that way? Yeah, what we found from our advisory panel of teens that we used for this year is that they're very savvy in proof in researching and looking at what the current trends are and what kind of results they want to get. So we wanted to continue with being uh, that place that we can support them in improving their fitness and expanding their programs so they can get the benefits of fitness of what they want. I think the other thing that's good for me from this standpoint as a, as a parent, Tracy, is I look at a program like this that you're doing and also it gets kids thinking about eating healthier. Like if I'm going to the trouble to be part of this uh, free workout program, a good life in the summer, that maybe I'm going to make some healthier food choices through the summer as well. Yeah, we are really hoping that teens look at this very holistically. Like I said, with the mental and physical well-being, but just looking after themselves in general. We find it really inspiring to hear those testimonials of how this program really has changed the trajectory of teens' future when it looks to their fitness. So we're really excited to impact more teens every year. Okay, just so people know, there's 200 Good Life Fitness Clubs in communities all across Canada, and it's free seven days a week for youth 12 to 17 from July 5th to September the 4th. You can register for the program on the open today at teenfitness.ca. Go to teenfitness.ca. Uh, Tracy, anything else you want to tell the listeners about the program and some of the stuff they can expect this summer? We just really want people to go to that teenfitness.ca and get registered. Um, make that first step if it's their first step or continue their ongoing workouts so they can remain successful going into the, maybe their fall sports seasons. Um, like you said, 200 locations, so there's lots of availability across the country, and we really hope people reach out and um, get the benefits fitness can give them. Yeah, and, and Tracy, I think that to me the great benefit of this is as a youth, but as they get older, it becomes a habit. As important to them as brushing their teeth, that, hey, I got to go exercise a few days a week to keep myself healthy, and I think it's fantastic. So to you and your staff, thank you so much for doing this. I think it's such a great thing for the youth of this country. Great. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure, Tracy. Take care. Bye-bye. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.